We are proud members of the Spy Podcast Network. Find out more at www.spypodcasts.com. Due to the themes of this podcast, listener discretion is advised. From a security standpoint, um, the new center of gravity for a lot of Islamist insurgencies, one might argue, is actually no longer the Middle East, but Sub-Saharan Africa. Lock your doors. Close the blinds. Change your passwords. This is Secrets and Spies. Secrets and Spies is a podcast that dives into the world of espionage, terrorism, geopolitics, and intrigue. This podcast is produced and hosted by Chris Carr. On today's podcast, I'm joined by Sam Lichtenstein. Sam is the Director of Analysis at RAIN, which stands for Risk Assistance Network and Exchange. On this episode, we will be looking at world events for the year ahead with RAIN's annual global forecast for 2023. 2023 sadly looks like to be another challenging year, so I think you want to check this episode out. It's a deep episode, so I recommend you pour yourself your favourite drink and sit back and take it all in, and I hope you find it informative. Thank you for listening. Just before we begin, we now have a YouTube channel. I've been threatening it for a while and now we have it. So please follow the link below in the show notes and subscribe to our YouTube channel. On there are video versions of the podcast. So if you like to see a squiggly line with your interviews, you can now see a squiggly line on YouTube. If you wish to support the podcast, there are a few options for you. You can become a Patreon subscriber and directly support the show for £3 a month. We also have a merchandise store at Redbubble. We have cups, coasters, water bottles, and tote bags all available on the Redbubble store. Also, if you enjoy this episode, please share it on social media among friends, family, colleagues, cohorts. And lastly, please leave a review on your podcast app. All reviews help the show get discovered by other people. Apple Podcasts in particular love reviews, and they really help this show get featured on the app. So please do leave a review. All the links are available in the show notes below. Thank you so much for your support. And without further ado, let's get going. The opinions expressed by guests on Secrets and Spies do not necessarily represent those of the producers and sponsors of this podcast. Sam, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks so much, Chris. Great to be here. It's good to have you back on. Just for the benefit of new listeners, please can you just tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. So my name is Sam Lichtenstein. I'm one of the two directors of analysis at Rain. We are a risk assistance network and exchange, and we're a company that, of course, uh, you've had us on very kindly to your podcast before to talk about our forecasts for the globe uh, to talk about individual topics. I know I spoke with you a few months ago about uh, the impacts that the war in Ukraine was having on Russian intelligence in Europe. 
and really excited to be back with you. Yeah, well, it's great to have you back on. So, yeah, today we're going to talk about the rain annual forecast for 2023. And just having a, a look through it myself, it sounds like this year is going to be quite a dramatic and seismic year in places. So I suppose before we dive into what the about the specifics of the forecast, can you just tell us a little bit about how the forecast is produced and, and compiled? Sure. So this is something that rain has been doing for many years now, and we produce an annual forecast and then three quarterly updates. Yeah. Uh, we also, uh, just to have some extra fun, produce a decade forecast. So if you really want to talk about how to think through and scope things, that's a, a fun project. Uh, but obviously, you know, we hope that all of our forecasts build on one another. And so the process really starts towards the end of the year, basically around uh, October, November. Members of our team start brainstorming what are the key topics that we're going to be looking at, key countries, uh, what are we really going to be dedicating our efforts to? Because it's not about capturing necessarily every event that happens, which would take far too much time and, yeah, and really just yeah. be impossible. But trying to actually look at the actual trends, what can we say more broadly that's of interest to our clients and always thinking about the impact. So we'll have a number of brainstorming sessions. We'll have our analysts present their ideas and we offer some group critiques to ask probing questions. Did you think about this? Why are you saying this and not that? Yeah. Then there'll be a, a round of writing that our team does that'll be commented on by other analysts. It'll go through a couple of review processes. Uh, and then we'll get together with our great production team to throw on some great graphics that can bring some of it to light. Uh, and then hopefully throughout the year, we can continually go back to that forecast and track how we're doing. And that allows our quarterly updates to make updates to that, as well as the individual pieces we, of course, publish every day theoretically should always be framing back to what did we say at the start of the year? How are we doing? Mm, fantastic, fantastic. So it's a big question, I suppose. Could you give us a sort of brief overview of what the forecast says for the year ahead? Yeah, definitely, definitely not easy to do in just one sentence. So hopefully your <laughs> listeners will permit me just a couple of them. Yeah. But broadly, I'd say that this forecast for 2023 is super interesting because we really see the globe at an inflection point. When we look back at what happened in 2022, most notably, of course, with the Russian invasion of Ukraine, but a whole number of other global dynamics, we really see what we might call kind of the Western liberal world order really under siege. And this is, of course, a trend that's been going on for a number of years, be it with the rise of China, a number of middle powers, kind of the paralysis within global institutions like the World Trade Organization, the United Nations. But it really crystallized, of course, with the Russian invasion of Ukraine, bringing an actual land war back to Europe, something that we thought was not possible in the 21st century. And what we now see for 2023 is really a world out of order. And there's no clear path back to the Western liberal world order that really reigned since the end of World War II. And right now, the world is kind of in flux. There's a lot of uncertainty. There are a lot of shifting alliances. And that's creating a much more dynamic and, to be honest, very complex environment for organizations to navigate. Yeah, yeah, indeed. Are there any sort of global trends that we should expect to see in the year ahead? Absolutely. So the first one, of course, I mentioned is already this idea of kind of the world out of order. Uh, mm -hmm. We're going to see uh, the United States, as you've seen throughout 2022, increasingly try to marshal its Western allies, particularly in Europe, but also Canada, Australia, New Zealand, Japan, et cetera, uh, and try to push back against this, uh, what you've seen from Russia, China, a whole host of middle powers, including a number of key states like India, South Africa, that 
ne not necessarily moving towards a different camp, but also not willing to ally themselves very clearly with the West. A number of these states have very notably stayed neutral in the Russian invasion of Ukraine. And so one of the big trends that we're looking at is how both sides of this increasingly multipolar world react, because what we don't see happening is a return to kind of the Cold War-esque bipolarity. Um, this is not necessarily a US versus Soviet Union redux. Instead, it's actually much more complex emerging multipolarity where you have a pole in the United States, you have Europe that, of course, much closer to the United States is honestly pursuing a lot of its own policies. You have Russia, you have China, you have a whole host of middle powers, be they Turkey, even small Gulf states like the UAE that are significantly punching above their weight and how they're kind of all navigating this environment uh, is super interesting for those of us who like to look at these things. Yes. Uh, but also if you're trying to figure out how to navigate this world, it's very challenging. Uh, one of the other big trends that of course goes along with this is energy. Um, uh, energy security is a term I think that re-entered the lexicon of individual people in 2022 and it's gonna stay that way in 2023. We're gonna continue to see a lot of uh, disruption to energy markets, of course, based on the continuing Russian invasion of Ukraine. But also, for instance, as China's economy comes back online, you're going to see a huge uptick in demand for oil, gas, things that quite honestly had slumped in the past years because of zero COVID policy. Now that that's over, we're expecting, especially in the second half of the year, the Chinese economy to really be demanding a lot more of these goods. So that means that you're going to have increased global competition for oil, gas, other energy products. And of course, that has really impacts on everyday lives. I mean, You've seen, of course, particularly in Europe uh, in the past few months, a huge spate of strikes uh, and other labor actions that mm. are related to the cost of living. And the most important thing right now that's driving that cost of living crisis is energy. Uh, and so those are two of the things I'd really highlight. And if you wanted to add a third to make things uh, perhaps even more gloomy, just the state of the global economy overall, um, as you have continuing high oil and uh, gas prices, the, the continued monetary tightening that we expect the United States, European Union, other major powers to continue to take to try to uh, stave off inflation and bring it down is going to mean that the risk of recession uh, is going to be high throughout the year. And even if you don't enter into a recession in developed economies, you're definitely going to see an economic slowdown. And of course, if you are a developing state, uh, particularly one that may be more dependent on imports of, of key goods, that's going to put you in a really precarious position. And we can, of course, talk about a couple of these countries during our discussion later. Yeah, yeah, indeed. Just think about the uh, energy crisis and demand. I mean, as we speak now, I'm wearing like three layers just to keep their central heat off as much as possible because uh, you know I think at the moment we're seeing that uh, putting the heating on almost accounts for 50% of our energy use in the day if we put it on so it's, uh, so we're using it in minimal minimal ways currently so yeah <laughs> no, it's crazy um so what's great about the report is obviously breaks down everything into specific regions so um, I guess we'll just try our best to cover as many regions as we can so we'll start with with Eurasia if that's that's okay absolutely and of course this is you know, you can't escape the war in Ukraine continuing to dominate the headlines. Yeah, um, yeah. And the, the short answer from us here is don't expect an end to the war in 2023. Uh, there may be some slowdowns. Uh, there may be some ebbs and flows. But this war is not going to be resolved by the end of the year. And it fundamentally comes down to the, the basics that neither side is willing to concede. And the Ukrainians still believe that they not only are entitled, but increasingly able to retake territory. And on the other side, you have the Russians that believe the time is on their side, the longer that they can stay in and Ukraine, the better defended their positions are going to be and the less incentive they have to remove themselves, which, of course, would also be 
incredibly politically unpopular and risky for the Putin regime in Russia. And so you have two sides that are at loggerheads. They both feel time is effectively on their side. Uh, and so the idea that you're going to have any sort of a sustainable ceasefire, let alone an actual peace deal, mm. uh, is sadly just not going to be the case. Mm. And with potentially uh, another difficult winter ahead for Europe, I can see enthusiasm gonna, is going to flag for for supporting Ukraine. And also, I suppose, with the presidential elections of next year in 2024, I think you're going to see, I think, I don't know whether Russia is going to intentionally try and keep it going for as long as possible to get into those areas. I'm not sure. Yeah. And, and we can certainly talk about some of the ripple effects of the Ukraine conflict uh, in Russia and Europe uh, when we get mm. to those sections, because, of course, I mean, you know, we we were talking on our analytic team a few weeks ago about the importance of us looking at all these global topics from various perspectives. Mm. I mean, the Russian buildup in Ukraine was a problem for our Eurasia team until February 24th of last year. And then the day after, it suddenly became a problem for everybody because of the just immense way that it ripples through politics, economics, security, mm. energy, technology, the environment. You really can't escape sadly, the, the impacts that this conflict is having. Yeah, indeed. And and how is Putin's sort of popularity doing in Russia at the moment with regards to the war? Yeah, you know, as much as I'm loth to say it, President Putin does not really face any significant challenges to his power. Now, we, of course, see a lot of media stories uh, that I'm sure are, are sourced accurately talking about disgruntlement, etc. But the simple fact remains that he has a very effective grip on power uh, and there's no plausible alternative. Uh, and so if you even kind of conceive of what might cause that, sure, we can talk about some mm. of the indicators. For instance, if Russia were to actually lose Crimea and the Ukrainian forces were able to take that back, so territory they had lost to Russia in 2014, that would be a huge setback for Russia. But it's also one that we see as incredibly unlikely. Um, mm. And Putin has effectively kind of weaponized this war, not, of course, only in Ukraine, most directly physically, but also for domestic, political and economic reasons to basically just increase his central control of the government. Um, and so we don't see there being any significant challenge uh, to his power base. And, you know, I, I'd also offer the idea that if there ever were to be one, it's actually probably more likely to come from more of the hard right conservatives that don't feel he's gone far enough than it is from kind of the liberals that may be more inclined to negotiate and into the war. So mm. for those of you out there who, like me, are, of course, aghast at Putin, I might also offer the idea that merely changing him actually can make things worse. Uh, and so mm. it's a situation we, of course, monitor very carefully because obviously Putin has true central personal control of what is going on. Uh, but at the same time, we don't see him being forced to exit anytime soon. No. Is there anything else on Eurasia you'd like to add before we move on to Europe? No, of course. Uh, we could go into a whole lot of topics, but for the yes. sake of time, I won't <laughs> I won't bore everyone uh, with everything in there. <laughs> okay. Well, let's have a look at Europe. What do you think? What what lies ahead in Europe this year? Sure. So as you know, we already alluded to, Chris, this is obviously an area that is directly impacted every day by what goes on in the war in Ukraine. Mm. Uh, and so one of the first key takeaways here is that the, the cost of living crisis that we saw, especially towards the second half of 2022, is going to continue uh, and in some places might even intensify. Um, you, I will say some very good news for Europe uh, that is worth saying very clearly is that there's been a very mild winter 
Europe has done a great job stockpiling energy supplies. More supplies will start to come online towards the end of this year, though admittedly not really until 2024 as much. Mm. But the cumulative effect of these policies has been that the energy crunch that we were extremely concerned about and is still a major risk has definitely mm. gone down a bit. And so we're not as concerned that there is going to be a major disruption, say, to natural gas. There will continue to be struggles. Uh, obviously, uh, Russia could really do a number of things that would make things worse. However, Europe has actually been both lucky and good in its policies uh, over the past year. And so that will help to some degree. But even so, as, as I mentioned, the impact of inflation is going to linger. Um, and there are a number of particular flashpoints uh, that I mentioned most importantly uh, and most immediately uh, is in France. Um, mm. You know, one of the things that we put in our forecast uh, was that France was going to face an exceptionally tough year driven by President Macron's very controversial pension reform. Mm. Uh, and unfortunately, within just a few weeks uh, of us putting out our, our forecast, this has, of course, been seen. Uh, you've already seen the start of mass demonstrations against this. Uh, and so that type of labor activity, particularly in France, is, is going to remain mm. at least for a number more months. The French government wants to wrap this up uh, by the middle of the year. So there is kind of a proverbial end date, but that doesn't mean things are going to be any easier anytime soon. Yeah. Um, you see similar challenges, of course, where you are in the UK. I mean, there have been weeks of, of awful strikes that you know far better than me. Um, and these type of challenges are gonna, you're going to see throughout the continent. Yeah, yeah, indeed. Um, you also, in your report, mentioned political risk is moderate, I think, in Italy and Poland. Is there anything significant that's going to happen in those two countries this year? Absolutely. Thank you uh, for, for calling those out as well. Uh, you know, I, uh, my wife and I came back from a trip to Italy last year, and I was very happy that I went uh, then and perhaps yeah. not right now. Uh, yeah. Of course, you know, Italy made huge news uh, last year because they elected a, a far-right government, uh, which was seen as, uh, at a minimum, I would say, controversial. Uh, but it was also one of kind of the lesser stories uh, that I think is you're going to see play out this year is that it's also a very big tent. It's made up of a lot of kind of disparately ideologically motivated mm -hmm. people and parties. And while they can kind of be put under this uh, right wing or even for some people, you know, extremist uh, for certain people that are associated with it. Overall, it's a very big tent. And so you're going to start to see real fissures there. It's going to challenge policymaking. And of course, Italy is one of those countries, unfortunately, you always have to worry about from an economic perspective, mm -hmm. whether it's able to keep its debt load and burden in check. And so whenever you think about a global economy that's going to be risking recession, for Europe, really the first country you think about is what that means for Italy. And so you're going to start to see some of these pressures emerge. And then in Poland, we're likely to see a general election uh, sometime before the end of this year that's really going to pit this uh, nationalist, almost confrontationalist government uh, against kind of a more pro-EU uh, opposition. And obviously, Poland, in addition to Hungary, has been one of those two countries that we always think about in terms of how does uh, how do they interact with the rest of the EU? They're kind of seen as uh, perhaps the the bad stepchildren, so to speak, uh, where they're always uh, fighting over the rule of law, disbursement of funds. Uh, and so this is going to be a big test election to see just how the public reacts. Mm. And what do you guys think is in store for the UK, just uh, coming from my perspective? <laughs> of course. Well, first of all, for your sake, I hope there's less political turnover. Obviously, a number of wild yeah. weeks uh, in the UK last year. Mm. Um, mm. The big story and, and the question that we get a lot from our clients is what is going to happen in the standoff uh, over the Northern Ireland Protocol? Mm. Um, and the, the short answer from us is this is going to be 
be an incredibly complex situation. However, the incentives for London and Brussels to come to some sort of accommodation are high. And so we do feel that the two are going to be able to have some sort of solution here, even if, mm. to be candid, it's a bit of a fudge. Uh, but the UK and the EU don't want to have this continue to be a problem for either of them, particularly as the war in Ukraine goes on. Uh, this is an issue they would really like to put behind them. And hopefully with the now multiple successive changes in the UK government, they also can't risk, uh, you know, having this fester. And the last thing that Prime Minister Sunak needs uh, is some sort of major trade war with the EU while he's confronting all these problems at home. So we feel that the, the chances of an agreement to, if not fully settle, at least paper over this uh, are quite high. Mm. I also noticed in the report there was um, some talk of maybe sort of slightly more positive relations with the EU that could lead to rebellion within the Conservative Party. I don't know if there's anything on there you wanted to add. Yeah, this is going to be uh, another tough year, I think, internally, soul-searching for the Conservatives. Um, I certainly hope that Prime Minister Sunak uh, is able to to stay in for at least a couple more weeks uh, to outlast <laughs> some of his predecessors. Uh, but the mix of what he's going to be forced to do, which is effectively hike taxes uh, and improve relations with the EU in order to maintain any sort of modicum of political and economic stability, of course, for a lot of the hardline internal Conservative Party members, those are really anathema to them. Mm -hmm. uh, and so you continue to see from our perspective kind of a split within the Conservative Party between perhaps some of the more ideologically motivated hard right individuals and some of the more pragmatists that someone like Sunak ostensibly represents. Um, and so it's going to definitely challenge them. And of course, you have a, a Labour Party now under, under new leadership that is going to be pulling ahead in future elections. And mm -hmm. so the conservatives are going to really face tough decisions about how much do they try to internally rally behind Sunak and other leaders, how much do they try to go somewhere else. And of course, overall of this uh, is that the Labour Party is kind of sitting, biding its time, thinking, well, we certainly don't look foolish on national television every day in the same way uh, and definitely preparing to, to try to challenge the conservatives again. Mm. So, yeah, interesting times ahead. So um, is there anything else for Europe you want to add or should we move on? I don't know. Let's let's move on. And, and I think yeah. next up is Asia Pacific. It is. Yeah. Let's have a look at Asia Pacific. Yeah, of course, nothing, nothing big happening in China ever, Chris, you know, <laughs> um, quite quiet crickets. You know? <laughs> yeah, definitely. Uh, of course, you know, it goes without saying the end of zero COVID, of course, is, is a major change. I mean, this, yeah. this truly affects all part of Chinese society and crucially also the globe, you know, as I already mentioned, for instance, merely ending this policy means that there's going to be a huge uptick in economic activity, particularly later this year, once you get over some of these really awful infection upticks that China's currently going through. Uh, and so that's going to set the stage for huge transformations again in the global economy if the Chinese economy comes roaring back. Uh, but, you know, in, in the medium term, China still has major economic challenges to deal with. I mean, the real estate sector uh, is on the one hand has powered the economy a lot, and it's now also somewhat become the largest liability. I mean, you have a huge amount of, of debt here, really unsustainable, both from individuals and companies. Um, the Chinese government is continually trying to figure out what to do about this. Um, and so far, we've seen some signals that they are going to try to uh, you know, recapitalize and allow the real estate section of the economy to be an engine for growth. Uh, but they're also risking in doing so, kind of letting these debts accumulate, and that's not going to weigh on the economy very well. 
Um, you also have now uh, President Xi, who, of course, has been confirmed for another five-year term, which was probably uh, the easiest analytic forecast we, we ever had to make. There was never a, never a concern there. Uh, but it also means that with him in power, you know, he's now effectively surrounded himself with, you know, what you could call yes-men. Um, this is not uh, a decision-making body that is run by consensus, as it was historically for many decades. This is now really personalized leadership. And so you get uh, sudden policy changes, like the basically overnight end of zero COVID after literally years of the opposite. Um, and that's going to risk a number of other challenges going forward. Basically, if the, if the whims of Xi and the small cadre that surrounds him kind of writ this idea, whatever that thing is, will go forward. And of course, the opposite, if, if they don't like something. Um, one thing I, you know, I do want to talk about it is Taiwan, because of course, yes, you can't you know, talk about China uh, without, mm. unfortunately, nowadays also talking about the risk of conflict in Taiwan. And the short answer for us is, you're going to see a lot of bluster, but this is not the year for the Chinese invasion of Taiwan. We actually don't foresee that as likely for, for a number of years, um, driven by a number of considerations. First thing, uh, you know, Chinese are not looking to, to rock the boat, so to speak, before they're eminently prepared. They see what's happened in Ukraine uh, when you go in and you're, you're not prepared. Um, mm -hmm. And so they know that they still militarily have things that they need to advance on just to make it kind of operationally successful. Um, and that also that they would prefer to be better insulated against what would be the obvious global blowback in terms of sanctions uh, before they were to do this. So we don't see it as likely as this year. We don't see it likely for a number of years. And, you know, we want to make that obvious. That being said, that doesn't mean that the risk is not going to be ever present. I mean, just a few days ago in the U.S. press, we got reports of the new House Speaker, Kevin McCarthy, planning a, a trip to Taiwan. And we know what happened the last time after yeah. previous Speaker Nancy Pelosi did in August. You, of course, had this true firestorm of military exercise uh, from the uh, Chinese government uh, nearby in the waters. You have a huge number of uh, planes going through Taiwan's air defense identification zone. Uh, and so one of the things that we're looking at is if the U.S. House Speaker goes, are we now establishing a precedent where basically you get in kind of these tit for tat cycles where mm -hmm. every high profile U.S. leader now needs to go for kind of domestic political reasons, show their solidarity with Taiwan, be anti-China and the Chinese respond in kind with massive military exercises. Um, and of course, that might not. Uh, lead to immediate invasion, but it also in really increases the risk of miscalculation, setting up these new precedents. Yes. So um, what's the situation going to be with Korea and Korea and Japan as well? Yeah, you know, from, from the U.S. perspective, Chris, I think if uh, a lot of our defense planners had a, a wish list, high up there has got to be that Japan and South Korea bury the hatchet to jointly confront China. Yeah. Um, you know, these are two U.S. allies uh, who simply for a variety of very deep historical reasons, do not get along. Obviously, the legacy of Japanese colonialism, militarism in the region is very strong in South mm. Korea. And mm. the two governments tragically still continually are at loggerheads over their ability to, to work together, particularly in the military field. It's a very sensitive topic in both areas. Um, and what you've seen already this year is huge investments uh, by the Japanese in rebuilding their military structure um, of course, these are going to play out over a number of years. This is not like an immediate transformation, but Japan is taking on a lot more uh, responsibilities, something that the U.S. has long advocated for. Mm. And you're hoping from the U.S. perspective that they can start to reach some sort of greater accommodation with the South Koreans. But this is going to be kind of a continual push and pull over a number of years. Um, mm. And 
you know, to be from a personal perspective, I would say, unless both of them truly feel like the existential threat of China mm. is so much greater than their historic challenges, mm. you're still going to see uh, tensions between Seoul and Tokyo. Yeah, yeah. I know there's also in the report they mentioned Southeast Asia. There's going to be some sort of political instability in that area. So there's anything you'd like to add about that? Yeah, you know, uh, our APAC team does an incredible job not just looking at China, which, yeah. to be honest, I feel like when people talk about the Asia-Pacific, they often just mean what's going on in China. But you have this incredibly diverse region uh, with all of these countries that are incredibly important, um, and particularly from a Western perspective, as we try to look to see how can we manage, uh, if not contain, the rise of China, uh, all of these countries are, are extremely important and their domestic politics and economics therefore matter as well. Um, basically, the, the overall forecast that we see for countries like Thailand, Malaysia, Singapore, et cetera, it's going to be a year of, of looking inward. Um, you have what could be very contentious elections in Thailand. Uh, you have a new government in Malaysia. Um, you have a number of places that are really focused on domestic uh, instability, both at the political level and also economically. And so... Uh, this is going to be a year where we think if you are looking to invest or have operations in these countries, you're going to be one of paying a lot of attention to how they're kind of navigating their domestic crisis. And for that perspective, from the foreign policy perspective, they're going to be a little less relevant. Mm. Is there anything else with Asia you'd like to add before we move on to the Middle East and North Africa? You know, I, I will say I think it's incumbent just to mention that North Korea is still here. Uh, you've seen yes. obviously a huge <laughs> up drumbeat of, of different exercises and missile mm. tests, etc. Um, this is, again, not something that we see as a direct threat to South Korea or Japan, like the chances of an invasion of China, of Taiwan, or the similar to the chances of like a North Korean invasion of South Korea. It's mm. not in the cards. Uh, however... Uh, as North Korea continues to kind of expand its military capabilities and really test out these new options for deterrence, uh, of course, they are not seen as deterrence by South Korea, Japan, the United States. They're seen as very aggressive, and that's going to keep tensions quite high. Um, and we're, of course, also monitoring the risk of another nuclear test, which would be the first in a number of years. That's something that's definitely in the cards for 2023. Yeah, yeah. You sometimes get the feeling that North Korea just doesn't want to be left out. So it has to fire a rocket every so often just so people remember them. <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I struggle to, to think what it must be like in Kim Jong-un's brain. Uh, mm. But you do have to wonder sometimes uh, just how much it's attention setting versus actually military capability. And mm. we do actually think that despite perhaps what we might not like to think. There is quite a bit of calculation to what they do in terms of mm -hmm. trying to test out capabilities to know that, okay, this works, I can now use this. Uh, but it's hard to also not think through the kind of cries for attention and reminders that they matter. Yeah. And I think, am I right in remembering North Korea is involved with sort of arms dealing to countries like Iran and also Russia and things like that? Absolutely. There have been a lot of reports uh, that the North Koreans are actually shipping different uh, weapons and uh, artillery and shells to Russia to fight in Ukraine. Um, and if, you know, that wasn't interesting and concerning enough for you, North Korean hackers, from a cyber criminal perspective, are truly prolific. Uh, I mm. mean, of course, we hear and are concerned most about what Russia does in cyberspace, just given the the dynamics. But um, you've seen a huge amount of cybercrime executed by North Korea over the past year or two, uh, which, of course, makes sense for a country that desperately needs cash. 
um, and doesn't really have any other ways to get it. Uh, but stealing, I mean, millions and millions of dollars. And for uh, as a country like North Korea, that's a huge deal of money. Uh, and mm -hmm. so you can also expect to see more of that cybercrime uh, that, of course, affects everyone. Um, this is one of the reasons that even if you don't particularly care from kind of the nuclear perspective, mm. people should watch out from that perspective. Yeah, yeah, that's good. Good. To that. So let's have a look at the Middle East and North Africa. I think especially with Iran in particular is going to be quite a, a focal point this year, I think. Yeah, you know, I was talking with one of our teammates the other day and I was saying, I think the biggest story that's gotten lost amid the Russian invasion of Ukraine is the standoff with Iran. And that's something mm. that we definitely are concerned about in 2023. Um, and basically, our forecast is that the talks that have been proverbially on life support for mm. quite some time now between Iran and the West will collapse. Yeah. Um, we had a lot of internal debates over that, but that is what we believe is the most likely scenario. Now, what happens from that, though, is can look very different. Uh, do the talks merely collapse and nothing happens? We kind of are just go back to our corners. Do the talks collapse and there's a huge uptick in uh, uh, Iranian uh, aggression uh, in the region? So the way this plays out looks very different, uh, but our biggest concern is that the talks themselves are effectively going to fold. Uh, and what happens next is going to be of huge importance because, of course, Israel, which has showed repeatedly that it is has a much lower tolerance uh, for anything that might come close to an Iranian nuclear bomb. And Israel, of course, has repeatedly pledged it would never allow this to happen. Uh, does Israel make good on that threat? And if so, you can imagine kind of the cascading challenges that would come from that. There would be a huge uptick uh, in Iranian cyber aggression and then actually physical aggression, uh, particularly in the Middle East, but also elsewhere. And while we don't see that as the most likely option, uh, it's one that, you know, I want to be clear is at least on the table because from a risk mm -hmm. planning perspective, it's important mm -hmm. to think through kind of what that proverbial worst case scenario is. And even in the best case, uh, you see a huge amount of tension that's going to keep this risk of kind of tit for tat strikes between Iran and Israel, Saudi Arabia, the United States, basically all these other Western or Gulf mm -hmm. allies uh, really high. Yeah. And what's the future hold? Well, sorry, the year hold for Israel, because I noticed that um, obviously their new government, it seems to be sort of alienating their government seems to be alienating them a little bit from their allies at the moment. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the the new right wing government in Israel is now in a very tough position domestically and in terms of their foreign policy. Mm. You know, on the domestic front, this is basically Prime Minister Netanyahu had to cut deals with people that had previously been seen as beyond the pale. Some are even you know referred to as extremists. Uh, and that has put him really in a tough position because if he wants to continue to lead this government, he needs to accede to a number of the very controversial demands that these very right-wing, ultra-Orthodox parties and individuals believe in. Um, and so domestically, you're going to see a lot of consequences. Obviously, you know what people think of most uh, in terms of Israel is, of course, security issues. Um, 2022 was an exceptionally violent year in the Palestinian territories and Israel itself. Mm. Uh, and the signs for any sort of escalation are not, or excuse me, the signs for escalation are all there. Uh, you have a Palestinian authority that basically uh, has very limited control over the territories. Mm. You have people incredibly disenchanted uh, with Israeli rule um, and increasingly fighting with violence against it. And meanwhile, you have an Israeli government that was already deeply involved in a number of high profile uh, security yeah. raids throughout 2022. 
And now you have a new right-wing government that is actually looking to expand those and do even more controversial security policies. So unfortunately, the, the recipe in the uh, Palestinian territories for violence uh, is pointing upwards. And then on the foreign policy side, as you alluded to, you have a government that, of course, already had very tricky relations mm. uh, with a number of key foreign powers, mm. including ostensible allies like the United States, uh, obviously because of its you know, controversial security policies. Now you have a right-wing government that is kind of doubling down on them. What does that do reputationally in the United States? And then also really crucially, Chris, for all of these Gulf states that have started to normalize relations with Israel, I mean, you would now have the opening uh, of diplomatic relations with countries like the UAE. Do those things backtrack? Um, the big question is, is Saudi Arabia ever going to normalize? And I would suggest that under this right-wing government, it's going to be a lot harder uh, to do so just from yeah. a reputational standpoint. Yeah. Can you talk to us a little bit about what's in store for the Gulf states this year? Because there was some interesting stuff. Yeah. So the, the Gulf states, obviously, most recently seen uh, with Qatar, with the World Cup, have really started to generate a large amount uh, of outside mm. attention. Uh, and they are going to continue that theme in 2023. So the UAE is going to be hosting uh, the COP28 climate conference. So we saw COP27 last year in Egypt. The UAE uh, is now going to be our host uh, next fall. Of course, this is very interesting because you have a country that is a big energy producer that is leading a conference that is ostensibly designed to wean ourselves off of hydrocarbons and into green energy. Uh, and so there's going to be a lot of uh, interesting, I would say, commentary about that dichotomy, just as Qatar suffered from a lot of media scrutiny, for instance, over its treatment of foreign workers, uh, conservative mm. social policies, etc. Uh, but what you will see from states like the UAE, from Saudi Arabia, et cetera, is increasing kind of drives to diversify their economy, get investments into the green sector. They may be reaping a huge windfall from high energy prices right now, but they also know that the transition is happening and that if they are going to have any economic future, they need to start courting investment uh, into mm. other types of energies, uh, particularly green technologies. Mm, mm, oh, definitely. Um, and one last look at uh, just Turkey. There's some interesting sort of things going on with Turkey this year. Oh, yeah. Turkey, um, as I believe actually was on the, the cover of The Economist, if not last week, then, then the week before, um, has a crucial election this year. Um, the short story here is you have President Erdogan, who has basically now created a, a presidential system very centralized around himself um, and his AKP Justice and Development Party that are kind of fighting for their political lives. Mm -hmm. uh, the economy, thanks in, in no small part to uh, Erdogan's what I would call charitably highly unorthodox economic thinking uh, around inflation and interest rates. Um, some might say deliberately um, horrific uh, I, from that perspective. Um, you have an economy that's really struggling. People's cost of living uh, has shot up and their savings have shot down um, as they can effectively just buy far, far less with the money that they have. Um, you also have Turkey that's increasingly making sounds about expanding uh, militarily uh, again into Syria to, to fight Kurdish rebels there. Um, and so it's a very challenging year for Turkey. And this election uh, that's right now scheduled for May is going to be a crucial test. Um, and it's really going to see is this centralized AKP-led and really personality-led by Erdogan government mm -hmm. able to survive? Or do you actually have opposition parties that really have been clamped down upon um, and, and literally have leaders that are imprisoned um, by Erdogan's government? Uh, are they able to somehow muster enough support? And 
elections in Turkey may not be ideal, but they are generally able to see opposition people win if there truly are enough momentum behind them. And so this is not kind of a foregone conclusion, like you might say in Russia, where like, let's be real, there may be a quote unquote election, but there's no question who's going to win. In Turkey, obviously, the government has hugely tilted the, in its favor, but there is an opportunity here for the opposition if they're able to coalesce. Yeah, thank you for that. Um, I'm just looking at the time. I, I think we might need to just pick one out of South Asia, Americas, or Sub-Saharan Africa. Which one would you pick if you had to? <laughs> um, Crystal, I've, that's an unfair question. I'm gonna I'm gonna frustrate someone. I'm gonna frustrate someone. I'll, I'll, I'll I will make a call though. You know, obviously we talk a lot about um, intelligence uh, on your show, and so I would I would go to actually Sub-Saharan Africa because I think one of the huge stories. Uh, of 2023 that really draws on what we saw in 2022 was the expansion of various jihadist insurgencies across the Sahel. From a security standpoint, um, the new center of gravity for a lot of Islamist insurgencies, one might argue, is actually no longer the Middle East, but Sub-Saharan Africa. And you can actually count mm -hmm. me as one of those people that, that would say that. Um, as you saw, Islamic State, Al-Qaeda, other terrorist groups really take a beating in their traditional heartland in the Middle East. Um, you've seen really one of the only areas of growth in the Sahel and Sub-Saharan Africa. Um, you have a diverse set of groups here, some of which are linked to Islamic State, some of which are linked to Al-Qaeda, some of which are, are wholly independent, some of which are, I would say are, are quite fluid, uh, but they all share a general antipathy for the current ruling governments in these countries, certainly for Western influence um, and the continual expansion of these jihadist insurgencies further towards literal West Africa along the coast is, is a trend that we are really concerned about. Um, and even just the other day, right before we hopped on to, to record this, Chris, you may have seen that the government in Burkina Faso has demanded that French forces leave the country uh, within a month. Um, and this is, of course, coming after Mali did the same thing to French forces last year. Um, and notably, you now have Russian paramilitaries that have entered into Mali, uh, the Wagner mm -hmm. Group. There's already been accusations floating around that they may already be in Burkina Faso or could come into Burkina Faso. So there's also a very interesting dynamic kind of at a geopolitical level for influence in the region. Uh, but either way, the thing I'd really emphasize here is for those of us who are worried still about the threat of um, terrorism and insurgency, uh, but honestly, just about good governance and mm. uh, political stability, just economic uh, hardship for people looking at what's going on in the Sahel and if that spills over into some of the more generally peaceful, politically prosperous, economically successful West African states is a key concern for us this year. Yeah, well, thank you very much for all of that. Well, Sam, um, before we wrap up, is there anything else you'd like to add about anything we've looked at today or anything that we've missed that's important to you? Well, we definitely missed a lot, uh, yeah. but we, we you, can, you can blame that on me for, for perhaps uh, not being as judicious with my time as I could have been. Uh, oh, no, but... no, no, not at all, not at all. No, I, I mean, we've only got a finite amount of time what it means is people need to read the report for themselves, which is a good thing. So, <laughs> exactly, and and Chris, you said that I didn't. So you know, yes. nobody nobody blame me for uh, for being biased here. Yeah, indeed. Well, yes. So if anybody wants, there's more about South Asia and the Americas that are definitely in the report that were very much worth reading. So uh, I highly recommend that. So Sam, where can listeners sort of get access to the report, and how can they find out more about you and your work? Sure. So the the easiest way to do that, Chris, is to go to rainnetwork.com. So that's R A N E network.com. 
you can see all the services that we provide, everything from offering these forecasts to other uh, things that may be relevant to clients. Uh, yeah. And anybody who has any questions can definitely go there and we'll find a way to help them out. Fantastic. Well, thank you very much for your time today. Thanks so much, Chris. Listening. This is Secrets and Spies. 